Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast on Wednesday the 15th of April. Yes, 15th of April. How are we all this week? Yeah, good. It's It's got cold this week. We've like turned on the heater and we're very angry about that because we try to wait till April. But um, I don't know. It's a bit of a cold spell. Would, would people agree? It is. Yes. A, a bit of a cold week. Uh, I am struggling to adjust to this. Yeah, I've just been in like layers upon layers all week. Dressing, two dressing gowns at a time, actually, because our heating stopped working for a little bit there. So it's been fun in ISO. With the cold, she's been uh, a little bit, a little bit yally at night. So we've been trying to work oh. out how to how to make her more Stop comfortable. That. So then she sleeps. So then we sleep. Mm. Our cat is also she's an indoor cat, but something about the wind and rain sends her insane. Um, so it's just been kind of like the <laughs> as she runs from one end of the house to the other end of the house and then back again and. <laughs> You just you're watching her like. Can you please just calm down a little? <laughs> just a little. Stop. <laughs> Get on my level. Get on my yeah. level. Um, we were trying to we were trying to think of fun facts this week. There's not much much happening. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of just getting through this as best. But but we found out that all three of us have been getting on to fitness regimes. So like, yes. Rob, what's this, what's the story there? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't. Know. I've been trying to like mix it up as much as I can. But um, mm-hmm. I've been like finding a few good like high intensity workouts for at home. So like we've got a garage, a spare garage, not a spare garage. We have a garage that doesn't have a car. Um, so we have a space in the backyard that we use. Um, and it's, it's a very weird place because whoever was here before has a whole bunch of other random stuff. There's lots of hooks hanging from the ceiling and everything. So it's a bit mm-hmm. of a strange place for a workout. Oh. But it works and it's a space. <laughs> and it's fine. It's past an OHS clearance. Um, oh. Well, then you're good to go then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been using that to like do some like workouts and try and like try and get some oxygen flowing through my brain. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's pretty mm-hmm. easy to go a bit stale, I think. What about you guys? What have you been doing? Well, I have taken up yoga Ah. every single morning. And let me tell you, I thought it would do nothing to me at all whatsoever just because I'm quite cynical. I'm I'm quite cynical about not yoga in general, just maybe exercise. exercise. (laughs) There's only a select few forms of exercise out there that I've ever been happy with. But yoga is, it's really doing me wonders. Like it's just making my body feel good. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like you, Rob, it's been sort of, settling my mind being able to put me into that right headspace that I want to be back in I love it like all I'm practicing in my room on I am actually practicing on a yoga mat but you can do it anywhere so um, I would highly recommend it it's on I'm actually I'm going to recommend this to all your listeners 
and to both Rob and Idwin. Um, the app is called Down Dog and it's like a filtered yoga practice. Um, you can choose how long you want to do it for, what level you'd like to start it at and what you'd like to work on on your body um and yeah it sounds like i'm selling this but i love it so (laughs) no i think i i think it's a great point to be like um the internet is great it's a great accessible point for like different sort of workouts and free workouts you like you you go onto google you search up like i want to do like for instance i love dancing so i actually do a lot of dance workouts which is dreadfully embarrassing i don't (laughs) do anyone's home but it's great because I just go into YouTube or I go onto the internet and I'm like, this song plus this like energy and something pops up and I'm like, this is fantastic. This is one of my favorite parts of the internet is I can yeah. find accessible, like you can do this easily in your room sort of work. It's so, so it's like good. Apps, like anything that you can kind of, you know, tap into, yeah. it really lets you choose, like all three of us had very different exercise regimes going on, but it's really, yeah. I don't know, it's enabled through this. And it's not. I'm just thinking know. about I'm finding oh, sorry, like, Rob. <laughs> nice to have something every like every day to look forward to, like being like, this is my half an hour to an hour mm. of yoga or exercise or dancing or something. Yeah. I don't know. Like, this is my thing. Yeah. <laughs> this is my routine for the day. Yeah. 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 I think so it is I maintaining think so that routine. Like, the, the day when I have yoga next, I'm often so excited when I'm going to sleep that I can't sleep. So I'm like, oh, I've got yoga tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's what, well, that's what helps me like now. settle. It genuinely <laughs> helps me settle going to bed. Like, no, I can, I have a structured morning ahead of me. Like, this <laughs> is so good. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's incredibly nerdy, but I also respect the hell out of it. Like, just having that structure is really great in like just just the general time period that we're in at the moment like any sort of like structure and sort of mindfulness that you can get like a habit into fantastic phenomenal stuff absolutely well speaking of structured mornings what do we have on the show today <laughs> i win cool so we got um two stories this week i'm very excited about them uh the first we have is um it's about the emerging writers festival which is usually held in june and it's usually in person uh but of course due to this year's kind of bizarre circumstances are the festivals going online so we'll be getting more into the story at uh in june when the festival actually begins but today we actually were talking to roby Ru- sorry ruby rose um who was one of the organizers behind the event about what the digital festival is going to look like and how it's going to get writers involved and yeah just giving us a bit of a preview before the official program comes out which will be later in this month then up after that, we actually have a really cool science story. Uh, this is from Charles Foster, who comes from the University of Sydney. And he's actually jo- joining us on the show to talk about uh, vertebrae and specifically the three-toed skink, which is a species of skink which he's been studying recently and obviously his team's been studying um, because they believe it might be in the, in the midst of an evolutionary transition from egg birth to live birth. Now, this is, of course, something that many species have undergone over evolution's course, uh, but they're actually there and able to witness it and they're researching it and documenting it. And it's just this, it's going to be a sick little science story. I'm very excited to hear more Um, because I'm, I mean, I'm not great with my science, but I know evolution's cool and I'm very excited to hear about like (laughs) how, yeah, how the skink's adjusting. Anyway. No, so that's, those are two no, interviews. I, I am very excited for that. I yeah. think that's so cool. Just the evolution process. I'm sorry. This is just, I've not heard anything about this. And I think this is really exciting because are we ever going to see anything like this in evolution in our lifetime? 
other well, than the skink thing or i mean the thing is like that's well, just... the evolution goes on every single day right that's yeah, the point yeah um so I, I suppose this story comes as kind of like one of those beautiful reminders that yes these changes are happening yes we can see these changes are happening and i just thought it was a beautiful point to connect with a process that we intellectually understand but perhaps don't see see very often just or think about nature isn't static like it is dynamic mm-hmm. it's changing just perhaps not at the time scale that humans really understand exactly not so even. very funky very excited yes absolutely <laughs> well before jumping into all of that we might jump into some alternative news you listen to 3cr wednesday breakfast some folks know about it some don't Sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty Now, one, two, nitty-gritty Now, yeah, boom, nitty-gritty Hoo-wee. This is Jess on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast Now we'll be looking into alternative news The New York Times this week published an article upon research in forests and in relation to COVID. The destruction of forests into fragmented patches is increasing the likelihood that viruses and other pathogens will jump from wild animals to humans. This was shown, this research was shown from Stanford University, which was published this month. The research, which focused on contact between humans and primates in Western Uganda, shows lessons for the worldwide coronavirus outbreak with searching for strategies to prevent the next inevitable global pandemic. Uh, The study's lead author, Dr. Laura Bloomfield, said that if we can decrease the potential for people to come into contact with wild animals, that that this is one way to decrease the likelihood of having recurrent pandemics. In Uganda, a rapidly growing population means more people are carving up patches of forest land to feed their families. Humans have already claimed more than a third of the Earth's land for agriculture reasons and purposes. Tropical forests are being destroyed at record rates every single year. Um, in places like the Amazon and Indonesia, rain for, uh, virgin rainforests are being burned to farm commodities like soil, palm oil and cattle. Recently, deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon has risen sharply under their new government, which is a whole other ballpark with presidents um, becoming less strict on environmental justice. Another one of the study's co-authors has also said that countries like the US have their own example of animal-borne disease, which is actually came to my surprise because Lyme disease, which spreads from wildlife to humans by ticks, um, is happened from suburbs that are close, uh, suburbs and rural communities close to patchwood woodlands. The study showed that we are going to the animals and intruding on their habitats. A kind of cycle was found with recorded surveys and satellite data from this research showing examples of animal-human interaction in Uganda. Things like uh, families' dogs um, attacking monkeys and then men having to take... Things like this can cause, you know, pathogens from spreading from primates to humans, Um, as well as children and women being bitten um, in fields close to their homes. Um, while the research is expected to see the highest contact near the most uh, densest habitats, 
in primate habitats, they found the opposite, that dwindling islands of forest left as people moved in, around and in, in and around primates led to more interactions between humans and primates. People just ventured carelessly into the forest in search of wood for construction or food, and then monkeys and chimpanzees ventured out to feast on the crops. It's just a natural sort of interaction between these farmlands. Each of these sort of interactions offered viruses the chance to jump from wild primates to humans. Um, infectious diseases have been plaguing poor and marginalised people for a long time. And so maybe this research will sort of take a new look into urban planning post-COVID and to how that we can sort of tackle this primate to human issue of raising, you know, a new possible pandemic. Between 50% and 90% of Indigenous communities were decimated upon the European settlements in Australia when they brought the disease epidemics along with them. Now, with the COVID pandemic sweeping the globe, it's more important than ever to protect our Indigenous communities. The conversation published an article arguing that Australia's healthcare system needs to become more equitable for Indigenous Australians. So throughout this COVID crisis, the government's original advice for self-isolation for Indigenous people was for over 50 years old, for people over 50 years of age with one or more chronic medical conditions to self-isolate. While in perspective with non-Indigenous Australians with health conditions, the age cutoff was 60 and those without health conditions was 70. So this is a blatant reminder of a crisis within Indigenous health itself. This week, five health workers in the Kimberley tested positive for the virus, where half of all residents are Indigenous. The WHO director in general stated, COVID is revealing how fragile many of the world's health systems and services are, forcing countries to make difficult choices on how to best meet the needs of their people. While we continue self-isolation, hygiene practices and social distancing, we must learn from failures within the Indigenous health system. Research has shown that the public health system has focused on quantifying inequalities, not addressing the inequities that cause them. Research by a Maori medical doctor and academic, Dr. Reid, has shown that we need to look at equity through ways not limited by age, but instead individual needs and issues within communities, not as a collective. Dr. Reid says that while we are really worried about elderly, of course, we are also worried about our precariat, who, those who are homeless. We are worried about those who are impoverished, the working poor, those who are in prisons and institutions. So by this quantitative approach of looking at the community as all of the same, strategies are overlooking the dangers of minority groups. And this has continued throughout the entire health system and structure in Australian history. Indigenous people are deemed in this logic as being less important or too resource intensive. And then as a result, health workers in the Indigenous communities are forced to put their energy into appealing for change to this rather than being able to actually respond to any health crisis as what's happening in COVID. If we prioritise equity as a way of reducing vulnerability, we would ensure that the poorest are among the biggest beneficiaries of economic stimulus packages. I just thought this was really big food for thought. Uh, the government has said that it's been trying to help and doing what it can for Indigenous Australians, but with their current Australian public health system, Indigenous Australians are still being left so far behind. So I just thought that was a very important story to touch on. And it's even like, we discussed this a few weeks ago, but CDP, 85% uh, of its workers are Indigenous. And it, it was said at the time, they were told to stop work 
like a few weeks after a lot of other people, a lot of other workers had been moved home. So it was like they were putting these people in those positions through that work on the doll welfare, which were, ex- it was extraordinarily dangerous and risky. So it's, it's, it's just this holistic issue, isn't it? Where it's just like all government service or touch points really need to be consistent and really need to be proactive with what they're doing. But this has been a case where the, the government really has slumped on a response and been quite inappropriate, in my opinion. Um, the stories I have this week are much more about climate change than COVID. So one issue <laughs> to the other. Um, but it's actually a good story about how Australia's energy supply is on a good direction uh, as of last year. So according to the Clean Energy Council's latest report, now 24% of Australia's energy supply is from renewable energy sources. And this is with rooftop solar experiencing its third straight record-breaking year. And so as a result, Australia has met the renewable energy target a year earlier than planned, which is obviously great, but not a point for complacency as the targets could be much, much higher. Um, But having said that, the wind sector has had its best year yet with 837 megawatts of new capacity installed across eight new wind farms. And now it has actually overtaken hydro as the leading source of clean energy in Australia. Um, Last year also saw the construction of over 34 new large-scale renewable energy projects, representing about $4.3 billion in investment and the creation of over 4,000 jobs. However, there are still some key challenges ahead. So in particular, despite all this great growth, 2019 also saw a 50% downturn in new large-scale renewable energy investment commitments. And so some of the key barriers for this included project developers discussing grid congestion, erratic transmission loss factors, as well as reduced investor confidence. So although there's some great progress that's definitely happening in 2019, there's also some signs that this is significant challenges ahead. So some great news, but also some some news to think about moving forwards. Um, another story I found was uh, to do with climate change in Nepal. So climate change is putting the Himalayan region and millions of South Asians at risk, pushing them to live at lower and lower altitudes as the mountainous regions much higher up are becoming drier and harder to live within. And so there's been a new study about this and a very comprehensive study, the most comprehensive so far. And they found that the glacial melt is consistently decreasing annually and it's adding increased difficulties to communities trying to sustain themselves on the land by growing food. And so suitable arable land is becoming harder and harder to find year on year and lower down from the mountains as well. And the modelling is suggesting that even if the most ambitious climate reduction targets are met, one third of all the glaciers in that region will melt by 2100. However, on our current trajectory, it's looking more like two-thirds will melt by 2100, which will lead to significant restructurings in those communities and forced migrations. And also given that 70% of Nepal's population works in agriculture, the United Nations Development Program is warning that for Nepal, this trend may, quote, reverse and undermine decades of development gains and potentially undermine all of our efforts to eradicate poverty. And so as communities and villages move further and further downriver, there's still questions on, will they then have to move again in 10, 20 years' time? And all in all, these communities are just one part of the global pattern, which is the rise of climate migrants. And this is a number that keeps on growing year on year. Um, But the current estimates are saying that by the end of the century, we could actually reach 1 billion climate refugees, which is a really terrifying number to think that, by that stage, one in 10 people 
could potentially be forced to move from their homes due to climatic reasons. But yeah, that's my alternative news for this week. Yeah, thanks, Rob. It's it's such an essential point because, I mean, climate refugees is a growing thing. It has been for ages and it's often something that's kind of hidden. You know, we, we hear of like push-pull movements because of war and conflict and tensions, mm. but climate change is going to be massive and already is being massive to so many yeah. people's lives. Um, I wanted to finish up alternative news on a happy note, a happy story. Um, this is a fundraiser that's currently running. It's called the Happy Scrubs. And basically it's a Victorian-based initiative that is seeking collaborators, local volunteer sewers or fabric and sewing suppliers and sponsors to help make uh, protective equipment or PPE, you know, that protective wear um, to help like look after health workers and communities and people on the front line. So it's calling on anyone with sewing skills or potentially crafting skills who could kind of get involved and help create PPE equipment that of course is in desperate supply. Um, you can find out more if you are interested in heading to like Googling the happy scrubs or heading to Instagram. Apparently they have a very active Instagram uh, at the happy scrubs, but um, it just seems like a cute little initiative and a really great way to, especially seeing we're all in isolation, use some of those skills for some really important work. So Absolutely. that's what I wanted to leave off on. Level 
Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence. But you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Next up, we have a rather fun story, which is the Emerging Writers Festival, an event that will run from Tuesday the 16th to Tuesday the 23rd of June this year. This gives an opportunity for new writers to stretch those creative legs, and we actually have Ruby Rose, the Artistic Director and Co-CEO of the Emerging Writers Festival with us. Hello, Ruby. Hi, thanks for having me. No, our pleasure. Um, I was wondering, could you please start with just explaining the event and just a quick history of the festival? Yeah, cool. So the Emerging Writers Festival has actually been running for quite a while now. Um, So it started off as a smaller beast than what it is. In the past few years, it's kind of extended to about 11 days, running through June. Um, And it's a festival, a writing festival for writers, which is kind of um, the the main takeaway. A lot of writers' festivals focus on reading and things like that, which is great. Um, We focus on emerging artists who are wanting to sort of work on their craft or have some professional development or um, have a space to share their creativity with an audience. Um, So that's what we do. That's our place in sort of the Australian literary landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, since 2014, the organisation EWF has also run the Digital Writers Festival, which is essentially exactly what it says on the label. It's a festival... (laughs) for writers in a digital space and that kind of allows us to uh, be accessed by anyone anywhere with an internet connection, um, including sort of international um, attendees and things like that. Um, but it was also sort of a, um, a way to keep people thinking about other ways that they can be creative um, in sort of the age that we live in where there's a lot of different sort of technologies and things available to us and it's not about being super high tech or anything like that but just about being creative um, and realizing that writing isn't just novel writing which is Mm. amazing and incredible but it's also things like writing games and writing stories um, that are sort of interactive for audiences and things like that. Um, In terms of this year obviously a lot of arts events and festivals have had to cancel or postpone their Mm. programming um, due to the ongoing pandemic Um, and a lot of people have lost work and artists have sort of lost programming opportunities and sort of expected income and things like that Um, and we figured we should make a proactive decision moving forward rather than cancelling the festival we have the history of having run digital writers festival Mm. Um, that we were pretty well placed to move 
EWF this year online. So it's a smaller version. Yeah. 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 So I was going to bring up the online because I mean, it's great to hear mm. you have the prep of the digital festival, but I suppose yeah. logistics do change and the way you're presenting your content and people engaging is going to be different. Uh, how, like, what, what's your, what's your thoughts for having the online festival? Is it going to be a lot of videos or like what events can we expect from it? Yeah. So that's something that's sort of in the, um, planning stage at the moment because we've we you know originally had a program ready to go or the you know ideas ready to go and then that's changed a lot um so that's sort of things that I can't really confirm at the moment um (laughs) no problem yeah but we are excited and in the past like if you go and look at previous like digital writers festival is a very good example of what you can expect um our previous programs uh, last year we ran live streamed events. There were discussion panels, workshops um, and performance events. And then um, we also introduced last year EWF Digital. So my role with EWF last year was actually as the digital producer. Right. So um, I ran the digital stream of the festival last year. Um, so in that there's quite a few examples of what we've done in the past, what we've explored, things like digital platforms for visual, um, for exhibition, for um, audio projects and things like that. Yeah, so our previous programming is a pretty great example of... Really solid foundation for this year. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking with the transition, I mean... uh, I am a heavy writer myself, but I always like to write on paper or, Mm. uh, you know, I struggle, I suppose, with writing on different forms or I'm never, I'm never quite sure what the perfect way to write is, I suppose. Do you think having it online and as you said, exploring these different ways of writing might give to experimentation and exploration of writing? Yeah, that's exactly kind of what we hope for. Um, so I, myself as well, I'm a writer and I prefer to write, you know, physically pen to paper. Mm. But um, it was funny before I sort of started working in the digital storytelling space, I kind of was very intimidated by it. And I think that is sometimes a barrier in terms of like, oh, well, if I don't know about, you know, I'm not a coder, so how am I going to make an interactive story game? Mm. Um, and then it was something that I did for work and I realised there's actually platforms that are already set up that are quite easy to use and navigate. Um, so I think part of what we're excited for is people exploring and, and learning new skills that actually are simple but effective, mm-hmm. I think is the sort of crux of what we do or what we hope people will learn to do. I suppose my other thought is... Um you know, writers are obviously the caricature of them is kind of penciled away in their room, scratching furiously over mm-hmm. notes. You don't really think festival when you think writer. Cause we're, I mean, a lot of writers are very individuals and individualistic, you know, taking off their craft and working. What do you think I suppose mm-hmm. is the reason for why is it so necessary to have a festival like this to get writers in the same room and that sort of, you know, that sort of collaboration? Well, I think that's exactly why it's so important, right? Because writing is such a sort of solitary act really but it's important to have community and that's where EWF comes from you know we are a community of writers and that's 
super vital in terms of, you know, exploring your creativity and learning new techniques and, you know, peer support and, you know, seeing who else is out there creating and what they're doing. And it's really beautiful, actually, the festival in terms of networking um, in that. And that sounds such like such a gross way to put it. But, you know, people making connections with other writers specifically because writing is usually quite an individual act um, and writing in community spaces is really refreshing um, and opens you up to sort of more possibilities in terms of exploration and, you know, what you're reading even and things like that. Um, so I think EWF is really special in that way. And that was something that we didn't want to lose this year. Well, I think you're, yeah. Sorry, I was, I was going to say, I think you're absolutely right, especially with COVID-19. It's the reminder of keeping up this mm. continuance of community and that sort of, you know, m- moving things to still be accessible so you don't have that complete yep. shutdown. Um, I suppose with the lineup, you obviously have some fantastic people on boy- board for the festival. Is there anything you're particularly excited about or any events you want to kind of spruce? Um, so I actually can't. <laughs> At the moment, <laughs> still yeah. on the planning phase. Still the planning phase. It's, um, yeah, our program will be launched uh, in June. So our program launches. Cool. So our new festival dates are the sixteenth of June to the twenty third of June. But we launch our program on the second of June. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like every Tuesday in June, bar one is an EWF event of some kind, a launch. Um, so our program will be released then. Fantastic. All right. So we're kind of hanging out to see it (laughs) until then. Yeah. And I suppose, can, do you guys know yet? It might still be in the planning phase, but um, how do people get involved? Will it, I mean, will it be log on on Tuesdays and kind of see what's available or will it be needing to make an account? What, what are the logistics around that? Yeah. So it won't be anything like you won't need to make an account or things like that. Um, So it's just, yeah, we will put the program up and again, like it'll, pretty much run as previous festivals have. So if people want to check out um, the Digital Writers Festival from last year, that's a really good indication of how uh, things are likely to run. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Ruby, for joining us. We might actually interview, we get you back on closer to once the program is <laughs> when out. When I can reveal some secrets, yeah. <laughs> reveal all of the, yeah, that sounds yes. fantastic. Um, but otherwise, Amazing. thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Get him on a shot, get him away, get away, get away.
Listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have Tram Thoughts. So, hello, you're listening to 3CR. This is Tram Thoughts. Uh, this week was my week and I was uh, similar to what Rob, Rob was saying last week. It's very hard to come up with a tram thought with no PTV in sight. But uh, <laughs> Lack of inspiration. <laughs> lack of inspiration. This one actually began with a poem I wanted to write ages ago, um, which I keep coming back to. And it's all centred around the Victorian flower language. Now, do you guys know about the Victoria flower language? I am. I have never, ever. I've not heard. I. I am <laughs> I'm angry at myself that I haven't. But I am presuming it's Victoria the era rather than Victoria the state. Yes, it is yes. indeed. It is. Okay. So sorry. I should. I should have said Victorian flower language. Very correct, Rob. Um. So the Victorian flower language. Just as a prefix to this, it was an amazing cultural thing that happened within the Victorian period under Queen Victoria's reign, obviously in England. Uh, Now this was a cultural code very much more so in the upper classes or the richer classes, those who could afford flowers. But basically what it was, was flowers were used as message carriers. So primarily used to deliver messages that couldn't be said in open, polite public society. So these, these flowers became encoded with cultural meanings or messages that often lovers would pass through or friends or relationships, and they carried really important messages. Um, it, the flowers, it was actually down to such a fine art that the flowers were, sorry, the flowers communicated different things to the way they were presented and the way they, like, in what condition they were in. So if a flower was upside down, then the idea was being conveyed as the opposite of what it traditionally meant. Or if it had a ribbon tied to the left, the flower's symbolism applied to the giver, whereas if it was tied to the right, the sentiment referred to the recipient. And, of course, you know, if it was wilted, well, that was obviously the death of the message. But, I mean, I have a few examples here, you know, things like um, the white lily would stand for things like my love is pure or an iris would stand for I'm sending you a message. And they get, like, they get kind of rowdy as you go on. Different flowers truly did mean different things. and so. Again, as I said, lovers would often use this to say things like, you know, do you want to run away with me? Or I think you're really hot because <laughs> these sorts of things were so repressed. And it, what striked me about this entire like little bit of history was that this is, this is a case, it, it was really freeing. It was a case of communication, which was really cutting edge at the time. It was kind of a bit punk. It was something that your parents didn't know about. And it was usually like the young generations who were using these, you know, wild carnations to express their wild thoughts. And it was constantly also changing. It was really culture clashing at the time. It was also nonverbal. This communication came through, you know, the, the medium of a flower. And it got me thinking, what is our modern day equivalent? Like what nonverbal communication modes do we have? Or I suppose what in, inanimate objects or mundane objects do we fill with meaning as a signal to others? And I wanted to kind of pose this question to you, Rob and Jess. Can, what ideas do you have of like objects that we put huge amount of meanings or significance into and can only be understood because of the culture we live in. Before jumping into that question, the thing I'm just wondering is like, 
the flower man or the flower woman or the person who owns the flowers definitely has all the goss in these communities. Yeah. Yes. What everyone is thinking. All the secrets. All the power. Um, Absolutely. Like some of <laughs> Some of the flowers were like really bawdy or like really like, I hate you. You're like spiteful stuff. So definitely as a flower deliverer, like you would know what was going on a lot better than a lot of things. I just have like, because obviously like in your own generation, like, because this has made me sort of think of memes in our generation. Like I feel like that's Mm -hmm. like how, for me, that's like what I think. But like if... Was there a book or was there a guideline? Because I know in the Victorian era, everything was very like straightforward. Everything was listed and very, you know, present well so, presented in a language. But how? I was reading an article which was saying, yes, there was a book. There was like a directory of flowers. And like, again, people who are using this, this language, usually younger people, yeah. like studied it like the Bible. Like it was really important that you knew what the significance of certain flowers are. Yeah. And it gets really complex because... You don't want to mix yeah. up someone saying you thought someone loved you and actually they hated your guts. Like you wouldn't want to mix yeah. that. Yeah. Imagine if like a ribbon got pushed to the side, like, you know, accidentally. Yeah. And the person just looks in there and is just like, what the hell? It's sort, <laughs> of, like like a, it's like a, sort of like an olden day coding, a form of coding. Mm. Like you have to mm. learn that alphabet of obviously in pictographic and also actual forms and objects. But that's, it's, yeah, it's quite... And, the, and the, the meaning was constantly changing, which, again, brings me back to today because, I mean, we, we live in such an accelerated time with the internet and, you know, symbols can change meaning overnight through, like, viralness and all that sort mm. of stuff. Mm. Um, and so, like, I mean, when you mentioned memes, Jess, that's kind of what was on my list, but also, like, things like maybe emojis. I was thinking, like, what, what, what like, weird symbols do we take on and it means a lot more? And it's kind of in the hands of the... Uh, not necessarily the young people, but the people who are using the language, which, mm. you know, for emojis, it's like texters. Mm. What's your thoughts, yeah. Robs? Can you think of anything? Actually, I, it's a hard one. The thing I actually find most interesting about this is how it's a very perishable gift or a perishable form of communication. Like, obviously, over time, mm. it'll just decompose or it'll just go into the landscape. Um, mm. I just think this is such a contrast to how gifts are often given today, which is something that's very physical and doesn't decompose. So, there's something quite nice about the perishable communication. But on the flip side, we also do have a lot of perishable communication today, like Instagram stories or posts or images. Like it is another form of perishable information. Um, I just The the romantic sort of side of it. The romantic sort of side of it. Like, you know, it's diamonds are forever sort of thing with like love in these, in this sort of day and age, or maybe not even anymore. Maybe we're turning back to the Victorian flower. (laughs) <laughs> language but you know like it's i really like that what your point there uh, the non-perishable yeah something i was thinking about is like this is a bit of a wormhole off from this idea but like plants are coming back into like you know they're becoming cool again with the rise of like plant parents right you're renting you can't afford an animal you you get plants and you can usually like, there's like this weird bougie judgment system where it's like, who's got what sort of plants, you know, do you have a peacefully or like a maiden hair? And so I was thinking about it and I was like, oh wait, plants kind of are getting this, this coding back to them. Like if you're a plant parent or you're talking to your friends about how many plants you have, like it's starting to come back and it, it's kind of cool. Cause it brings up this, as Rob was kind of mentioning, it brings up this like nature back into our life and that kind of working with nature and appreciating nature even if it's temporary or transient because we often do chase communication methods that are a lot more solid 
you know? So it, it, I was thinking potentially that could be like a new vice maybe or mode or something that says something about you. Mm. Mm. I agree. Uh, other thoughts I potentially had was like, and this, this is, I mean, if we've just talked about kind of the nice, potentially nice modes or means of communication, the opposite of that is I was thinking maybe brand identity might be one of our dominant forms of like objects of, you know, uh, communication. Like often you can, you judge someone on, you know, what brandish sneaker they have or those sorts of weird sort of things have become very culturally significant and very culturally encoded. A lot of the socio status comes down to brands these days, especially in different sort of, I think, especially in younger people, um, even this goes into something completely different, but I've just noticed um, through, especially teenagers when they're sort of finding themselves, brands are quite a large, a big thing um, with that socio sort of status. Mm. Even not just in, it triggers through into the rest of society also, but yeah, I think it's a socio Mm. sort of symbol. And it's not necessarily, oh, sorry. Yeah, Rob. You you get Iwin. I was going to say, it's not so much communicating to another person like through flowers, like, you know, I love you, but it's very much communicating about you to other others. So I'm wondering if we're becoming more kind of self-focused with communicating, projecting outwards, but not, you know, it's not a transactional thing, mm-hmm. potentially. Well, the other thing, yeah. on, a bit, on a bit of a side note, the other thing that I kind of find interesting about the, the Victorian flowers is the, the level of risk involved. Like obviously when you send a Facebook message, there is well, more or less, it's only you and them reading them possibly mm-hmm. probably whoever the, the platform that you sent on as well whether or not it's encoded um but i guess like when you're you when you're sending it through the postman it's kind of like does your does your love or your hate get found out and there's kind of a level of like <laughs> risk or gaming with that and then i guess it comes to like do you gain the system so then you have another layer of information so you can communicating with the other person and the postman thinks he knows what's going on but he actually doesn't like i don't know there's this Love the idea of like a maid walking into a room with just like I don't know some like yellow can- carnations and just being like oh, gasp and like <laughs> scandalous. <laughs> it struck me also with this. I mean, I mean, obviously we're used to two-way communication and that sort of immediacy of a response, right? My nana always says it's terrible to message anyone because you just spend the rest of your life waiting for a response, you know. Um, but this is a really one-way form of communication, which would have taken quite a bit of time to communicate back and forth. Like you're not sending someone flowers every single day. You're slowly building up, you know, your messages over time and perhaps they might change as your love intensifies or, you know, the conflict ten- intensifies. <laughs> like it's quite a slow, you know, putting something out there and hoping you get something back. <laughs> And I guess little feelers. Yeah. And I guess like if there is ever a time in modern society to do it, it is now when we now. have an inside our homes to be able to send our flowers and like communicate in that way. That would be great. That's Maybe three CR Wednesday breakfast can take the lead in bringing back Victorian flower language. Yeah. In April, 2020. I Here reckon, we come. I reckon it's going to make a comeback as of now. Well, this is kind of where I wanted to go because I, I was thinking about um, the usefulness of it or the positives of it uh, in the, you know, the communication landscape because we have so much of it. And I don't know, I get bored with messages. So yes, I'd be happy with flowers being delivered at my door. <laughs> but it was also like, I was thinking something similar, but like COVID-19 and the spread of, you know, a spread of like safety measures and shutdown measures by the government has been, been very institutionalized and been very like, you know, a widespread advertising campaign. But then again, I was, I was thinking back to like some of the most effective COVID-19 
like communication campaigns and they've been like the italian nonna talking about safety measures and also mm. have you seen that image of the dab which has been used to communicate to like sneeze into your elbow sort of thing yeah those are two cases where it's like moving more towards non-verbal communication to spread a message and it was like it was this reminder of like there is alternative ways to get across our message i think we get very boring or very you know samey samey with how we communicate a message and it's like how can we communicate this across a different all channels different channels yeah. Mm. Um, my, my final kind of question I mean you touched on it with like <laughs> apparently wanting to start up flower language again <laughs> but would you want to see the rise of you know non-verbal communication in any other forms like do you is there anything that you're you think of because it is a huge part of our oh yeah Rob yeah go for it I so the thing I would like to see more of is a communication of the abstract because I feel like in an era of like memes and direct text, everything is very direct and specific. Um, like, yes, there are cryptic clues, but once you understand the language, you're kind of in with it, like any kind of slang or lingo. And I think what's kind of lost is communication through like, I don't know, conceptual art or conceptual music, or even like the idea of like a mixtape. But the thing I liked about a mixtape is that there's a, there's a level of curation and who you send that to and the songs that you choose and whether they're songs that you have a connection with them or they're just songs that you think express your, your desire to be with them or just encapsulate your experience with them. And I feel like that's kind of lost now. There's sort of less of that more abstract reflection of our communication. It's more very direct and specific. So I'd like to see more of that. Jess? I think I think so too. I agree with you. I think in this sort of age, we've all been so fixated on, oh my God, this is so great. We can instant message. We can conversate and get our point across with a click of a button, you know, like, and that was so amazing and so fantastic. But it did take away from the art of it all. And I think that's very important in showing like that real, the realness of it. And like in the romantic in me is saying that, you know, it's just, it's it, no, like you were saying, like even mixtapes in the eighties, making your own CDs in the nineties, flowers in the Victorian language, you know, of that era. But I think that's what we're lacking in our generation. That sort of love, that sort of, you know, we don't, we, we've taken that for granted. And I think that's, mm. like I think it's an people back. It's an indulgence in expression. And I think you both have touched on a beautiful point that I hadn't even thought about. So thank you. Which is like, it's lovely to get a slow burning message where you have to think about it, contemplate it and really take it in. And flowers are such a beautiful way. For me, I mean, I thought this was a great way of having greater connection with plants, you know, and, and I mean, we have... We don't learn about plants within our schooling. We don't connect with plants. We don't connect with landscapes. We live in a lot of, a lot of us live in suburbia or, or metropolitan areas. And it'd be lovely to be able to encode plants with messages and, and know their names, know their significance potentially as a, as a way of connecting with them. I also thought it just brings up a wonderful idea about how expressive nonverbal communication can be. And just, I mean, really exploring that. I, I attended a... A conference a long time ago and we had a team who specifically all spoke Auslan like they were all uh, from an Auslan school and they were all speaking sign they all obviously use sign language and one of the biggest points they made to us is they were like speaking like verbal speaking verbal communication is so limited because a lot of expression gets cut out of it I mean yes you have intonation you have tone you have pace 
but they were saying you have all the same sort of things through Auslan and they're really encouraging people to pick up that form of nonverbal communication because they were like there's so much personality and nuance of meaning and themes that you can explore within it so that's kind of where I was concluding I suppose with this idea yes Rob yeah, I think, um, so like building on that point, I like for me, music is a really powerful form of communication. And I would actually say the most powerful experience I had was at one particular concert where there was no lyrics at all. It's just purely a combination of electronic and classical music. The artist is Nils Fram. And like, it's like, I'm like, I'm not a religious person, but it's the closest I came to a spiritual experience going to that concert, just the way that he captured an energy in the audience and conveyed things. And it sounds kind of weird, but like I learned things about myself that I'd never thought about until being in that concert. And so I just find that kind of form of communication through art. I would just love to see a lot more because I just find it much more powerful than, than any other form. That's my I, complete, I completely agree with you with that music point. Uh, the same, I've had the same experiences at gigs or even concerts or festivals, same sort of thing. Um, I just think that, again, <laughs> to conclude that we just take this non-verbal communication for granted and that I've felt things and I've like learned things that I've not, I, could never, I could never do with a text or even a conversation with somebody. Well, thank you both for taking this topic on board. This week's topic was a little bit more random, but I think we've touched on a really lovely point. I mean, the Victorian flower language, let's be honest, did come out of an extraordinarily sexually repressed society that needed to communicate and get bawdy messages across. And they did it through flowers because that was socially acceptable um, until people found out obviously what they represented. Um, And I love how through this conversation, we've like shifted or subverted that into now like a indulgence in art art and connection with nature and all of the above so um i mean thanks you two for sharing it and of course if listeners do want to get into the victorian flower language which i mean why not you can actually search it up at the language of flowers or lowercase.com and there's just oh my goodness so many flowers so many meanings um uh good one to know just in the back of your mind is yellow pansy which is i'm thinking of you and that's definitely what we're all doing today
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have a recording from Paul Faleros, who made it his life work to stop people getting sick in small Indigenous communities in South Australia. Throughout his work, Paul has illustrated how the design of buildings can improve health and well-being in some of Australia's most neglected communities. The idea of eliminating poverty is a great goal. I don't think anyone in this room would disagree. What worries me is when politicians with money and charismatic rock stars use the words, it all just sounds so, so simple. Now, I've got no bucket of money today, and I've got no policy to release, and I certainly haven't got a guitar. I'll leave that to others. But I do have an idea. And that idea is called Housing for Health. Housing for Health works with poor people. It works in the places where they live, and the work is done to improve their health. Over the last 28 years, this tough, grinding, dirty work has been done by literally thousands of people around Australia and and more recently overseas. And their work has proven that focused design can improve even the poorest living environments. It can improve health, and it can play a part in reducing, if not eliminating, poverty. I'm going to start where the story began, 1985, in Central Australia. A man called Yummy Lester, an Aboriginal man, was running a health service. 80% of what walked in the door in terms of illness was infectious disease third world, developing world, infectious disease caused by a poor living environment. Yummy assembled a team in Alice Springs. He got a medical doctor, he got an environmental health guy, and he hand-selected a team of local Aboriginal people to work on this project. Yummy told us at that first meeting there's no money Always a good start. No money. You have six months, and I want you to start on a project which in his language he called Yuankara Palyanku Kaninjaku, which translated is a plan to stop people getting sick. A profound brief. That was our task. First step, the medical doctor went away for about six months, and he worked on what would have become these nine health goals. What were we aiming at? After six months of work, he came to my office and presented me with those nine words on a piece of paper. Now, I was very, very unimpressed. (laughs) Come on. Big ideas need big words, and preferably a lot of them. This didn't fit the bill. What I didn't see and what you can't see was that he'd assembled thousands of pages of local, national and international health research. That filled out the picture as to why these were the health targets. The pictures that came a bit later had a very simple reason. The Aboriginal people who were our bosses and the senior people were most commonly illiterate. So the story had to be told in pictures of what were these goals. We worked with the community not telling them what was going to happen in a language they didn't understand. 
So we had the goals. And each one of these goals, and I won't go through them all, puts at the centre the person and their health issue, and it then connects them to the bits of the physical environment that are actually needed to keep their health good. And the highest priority you see on the screen is washing people once a day, particularly children. And I hope most of you are thinking, what? That sounds simple. Now, I'm going to ask you all a very personal question. This morning before you came, who could have had a wash using a shower? I'm not going to ask if you had a shower because I'm too polite. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. I think it's fair to say most people here could have had a shower this morning. I'm going to ask you to do some more work. I want you all to select one of the houses of the 25 houses you see on the screen. I want you to select one of them and note the position of that house and keep that in your head. Have you all got a house? I'm going to ask you to live there for a few months, so make sure you got it right. It's in the northwest of Western Australia, very pleasant place. Okay, let's see if your shower in that house is working. I hear some ohs and I hear some ah. If you get a green tick, your shower's working. You and your kids are fine. If you get a red cross, well, I've looked carefully around the room and it's not going to make much difference to this crew. Why? Because you're all too old. And I know that's going to come as a shock to some of you, but you are. And before you get offended and leave, I've got to say that being too old in this case means that pretty much everyone in the room, I think, is over five years of age. We're really concerned with kids naught to five, and why? Washing is the antidote to the sort of bugs, the common infectious diseases of the eyes, the ears, the chest, and the skin, that if they occur in the first five years of life, permanently damage those organs. They leave a lifelong remnant. That means that by the age of five, you can't see as well for the rest of your life. You can't hear as well for the rest of your life. You can't breathe as well. You've lost a third of your lung capacity by the age of five. And even skin infection, which we originally thought wasn't that big a problem, Mild skin infections, 0 to 5, give you a greatly increased chance of renal failure, needing dialysis at age 40. This is a big deal. So the ticks and crosses on the screen are actually critical for young kids. Those ticks and crosses represent the 7,800 houses we've looked at nationally around Australia, the same proportion. What you see on the screen, 35% of those not-so-famous houses lived in by 50,000 Indigenous people 35% had a working shower. 10% of those same 7,800 houses had safe electrical systems. And 58% of those houses had a working toilet. These are by a simple standard test. In the case of the shower, does it have hot and cold water? Two taps that work. Um, a, a, shower rose to get water onto your head or onto your body and a drain that takes the water away. Not well designed, not beautiful, not elegant, just that they function. And the same tests for the electrical system and the toilets. Housing for Health projects aren't about measuring failure, they're actually about improving houses. We start on day one of every project. We've learnt. We don't make promises, we don't do reports. We arrive in the morning with Ton tools, tons of equipment, trades, 
and we train up a local team on the first day to start work. By the evening of the first day, a few houses in that community are better than when we started in the morning. That work continues for six to 12 months until all the houses are improved and we've spent our budget of $7,500 total per house. That's our average budget. At the end of six months to a year, we test every house again. It's very easy to spend money. It's very difficult to improve the function of all those parts of a house. And for a whole house, the nine healthy living practices, we test, check and fix 250 items in every house. And these are the results. We can get with our $7,500, we can get showers up to 86% working. We can get electrical systems up to 77% working. And we can get 90% of toilets working in those 7,500 houses. Thank you. The teams do a great job, and that's their work. I think there's an obvious question that I hope you're thinking about. Why do we have to do this work? Why are the houses in such poor condition? 70% of the work we do is due to lack of routine maintenance. The sort of things that happen in all our houses, things wear out. Should have been done by state government or local government, simply not done, the house doesn't work. 21% of the things we fix are due to faulty construction. Literally things that are built upside down and back to front. They don't work, we have to fix them. And if you've lived in Australia in the last 30 years, the final cause, you will have heard always that Indigenous people trash houses. It's one of the almost rock solid pieces of evidence, which I've never seen evidence for, that's always reeled out as that's the problem with Indigenous housing. Well, 9% of what we spend is damage, misuse or abuse of any sort. We argue strongly that the people living in the house are simply not the problem. And we'll go a lot further than that. The people living in the house are actually a major part of the solution. 75% of our national team in Australia, over 75 at the minute, are actually local Indigenous people from the communities we work in. They do all aspects of the work. In 2010, for example, there were 831 all over Australia and the Torres Strait Islands, all states, working to improve the houses where they and their families live, and that's an important thing. Our work's always had a focus on, on health, that's the key. The developing world bug, trachoma, causes blindness. It's a developing world illness. And yet the picture you see behind is in an Aboriginal community in the late 1990s where 95% of school-age kids had active trachoma in their eyes doing damage. Okay, what do we do? Well, first thing we do, we get showers working. Why? Because that flushes the bug out. We put washing facilities in the school as well so kids can wash their faces many times during the day. We wash the bug out. Second, the eye doctors tell us that dust scours the eye and lets the bug in quick. So what do we do? We call up the doctor of dust and there is such a person. He was loaned to us by a mining company. He controls dust on mining company sites and he came out and within a day it worked out that most dust in this community was within a metre of the ground, the wind-driven dust. So he suggested making mounds to catch the dust before it went into the house area and affected the eyes of kids. So we used dirt 
to stop dust. We did it. He provided us dust monitors. We tested and we reduced the dust. Then we wanted to get rid of the bug generally. So how do we do that? Well, we call up the doctor of flies. And yes, there is a doctor of flies. As our Aboriginal mate said, uh, you white fellas ought to get out more. Um, <laughs> and the doctor of flies very quickly determined that there was one fly that carried the bug. He could give school kids in this community the beautiful fly trap you see above in the slide. They could trap the flies, send them to him in Perth. When the bug was in the gut, he'd send back by return post some dung beetles. The dung beetles ate the camel dung. The flies died through lack of food and trachoma dropped. And over the year, trachoma dropped radically in this place and stayed low. We'd, we'd changed the environment, not just treated the eyes. And finally, you get a good eye. All these small health gains and, and small pieces of the puzzle make a big difference. In New South Wales, the Department of Health, that radical organisation, did an independent trial over three years to look at 10 years of the work we've been doing in these sorts of projects in New South Wales. And they found a 40% reduction in hospital admissions for the illnesses that you could attribute to the poor environment. A 40% reduction. Just to show that the principles we've used in Australia can be used in other places. I'm just going to go to one other place, and that's Nepal, and what a beautiful place to go. We were asked to, by a small village of 600 people to go in and make toilets where none existed. Health was poor. We went in with no grand plan, no grand promises of a great program, just the offer to build two toilets for two families. It was during the design of the first toilet that I went for lunch, invited by the family, into their main room of the house. It was choking with smoke. People were cooking on their only fuel source, green timber. The smoke coming off that timber is choking, and in an enclosed house, you simply can't breathe. Later, we found the leading cause of illness and death in this particular region is through respiratory failure. So all of a sudden, we had two problems. We were there originally to look at toilets and get human waste off the ground, that's fine. But all of a sudden now, there was a second problem. How do we actually get the smoke down? So two problems, and design should be about more than one thing. Solution, take human waste, take animal waste, put it into a chamber, out of that extract biogas, methane gas. The gas gives three to four hours cooking a day, clean, smokeless, and free for the family. I put it to you, is this eliminating poverty? And the answer from the Nepali team who's working at the minute would say, don't be ridiculous. We have three million more toilets to build before we could even make a stab at that claim. And I don't pretend anything else. But as we all sit here today, there are now over 100 toilets built in this village and a couple nearby. Well over 1,000 people use those toilets. Yami Lama, he's a young boy. He's got significantly less gut infection because he's now got toilets and there isn't human waste on the ground. Kajiman, she's a mother and a proud one. She's probably right now cooking lunch for her family on biogas, smokeless fuel. Her lungs have got better and they'll get better 
as time increases because she's not cooking in the same smoke. Surya takes the waste out of the biogas chamber when it's shed the gas. He puts it on his crops. He's trebled his crop income, more food for the family and more money for the family. And finally, Bishnu, the, the leader of the team, has now understood that not only have we built toilets, we've also built a team. And that team is now working in two villages where they're training up the next two villages to keep the work expanding. And that, to me, is the key. People are not the problem. We've never found that. The problem? Poor living environment, poor housing, and the bugs that do people harm. None of those are limited by geography, by skin colour, or by religion. None of them. The common link between all the work we've had to do is one thing, and that's poverty. Nelson Mandela said in the mid-2000s, not too far from here, he said that like slavery and apartheid, poverty is not natural. It's man-made and can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human beings. I want to end by saying it's been the actions of thousands of ordinary human beings doing, I think, extraordinary work that have actually improved health and maybe only in a small way reduced poverty. Thank you very much for your time. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and we were just listening to Paul Faleros, a recording where he spoke about his work and the improving the health and well-being in disadvantaged Aboriginal communities. Uh, next up, I caught up with Charles Foster from the University of Sydney to talk about um, a very exciting time in science and his article that was published in the conversation which you can go see we'll have a link to it in our rundown charles talks about his research into the three-toed skink and its current process of transitioning from egg laying to giving live birth so this story is all about evolution it's going to be very funky and i caught up with charles on monday to talk more well good morning charles um i'd like to start off with the first question could you tell us a little bit about the research you've been doing uh into the three-toed skink Thanks for having me. So in the lab group I work in, it's called the Applied and Evolutionary Zoology Group at the University of Sydney. And we research many different uh, directions, but we have this core theme where we study the evolution of live birth using different animals. So one of our model organisms that we use is the three-toed skink, Cyphos aquilus. Mm -hmm. um, this is a really special lizard that's only found in Australia. So the reason it's special is that it has uh, geographic variation in its reproduction, which means that around Sydney in some populations it lays eggs. And those further north near Barrington Tops in New South Wales give birth to live young. And so because it can do basically do it both ways, we find it really fascinating. And it's a great model for stu uh, studying the evolution of live birth. And that's not very common to a lot of different species. Am I right? Like the, the difference between animals laying eggs and animals with live birth is it's usually one or the other, right? That's very true. It's normally one or the other. So I don't have the statistics for invertebrates, so things like insects and so on, but with invertebrates, so anything with a backbone, if we're thinking mm -hmm. fishes, birds, reptiles, mammals, we only know of it occurring in three different lizards and one snake. So it's wow. exceptionally rare. And so two of these lizards are found in Australia, so we're really lucky. The other one's found in Europe. And so, yeah, we, 
we kind of we have a reputation in Australia for having this really strange and exotic fauna, and in this case, it's coming true. So we've got these two really fascinating lizards that do these really special types of reproduction. And what is the significance of researching around this? Um, obviously, like dual ability of different like is is it called bimodal reproduction? Is that the right word for it? Yep, bimodal reproduction is exactly it. Uh, and, it's yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's so uh, fascinating and important because it gives us this really unique insight into how live birth might have evolved in the first place. Because when we can, when you're comparing things that lay eggs and things that give uh, live birth across different species and you're trying to see what differences there might be, there are all kinds of things that might get in the way, like species-specific differences that are just unique to these different species. Mm-hmm. But if we're able to compare them within the same species, we avoid these um, species-specific differences. So what we can say is that anything we're seeing that is a difference between different populations could be directly related to their different modes of reproduction. And what, I, I suppose, what is the, what is the significance in this in con- contributing to um, like the theory of evolution and watching animals go through evolutionary and, and, and go through change? Because it has been the case that, I mean, as you said, previous vertebrae have transitioned from egg birth to live birth. Are we seeing, what, what are we seeing with the, when we look at the skink? So we basically, when we want to look at these big questions like the evolution of live birth, a lot of the model organisms have been things like rats or humans just looking at mammals and when we do this it is great to find out the fundamental biology of these groups but ultimately in the lineage that leads to all different mammals live birth only evolved once and it stuck with all of the mammals but if we're thinking uh, about uh, lizards and other reptiles in general, live birth has actually evolved many different times. So within lizards, it's estimated about 120 different times that live birth has evolved. And so if we can look at all these different groups and see how it might have evolved in each of these different groups, look at the evolutionary mechanisms, mm. it's a good way of having natural replication and being able to understand how this really fundamental process for reproduction might have evolved in the first place. And when you say that it's evolved um, so many times, does that mean it's been going back and forth between egg laying and live birth? Or like what sort of changes have you seen between, between that, in that? Yes, yeah, so that's actually a really good question because... Uh, it's hard to tell which way it might be going. But if we think about the physiology behind how they might give birth or how they might lay eggs, uh, biologists over time have thought it's much more likely that uh, it's evolving from the ancestral condition, which is egg laying, Mm -hmm. uh, to live birth. So they think that there's been all these independent origins of live birth over evolutionary history. So the direction is from eggs to live birth. And what are the, I suppose, what are the major changes that happen with this very drastic change in reproduction and, and, and birthing? What yeah, are the so, physiological changes? So within uh, reptiles in general, they're almost uh, predisposed to be more likely to go towards live birth if we think about how they, inc- they incubate the eggs within the mother initially compared to other groups. So if we think about birds, um, they have the eggs developing within the mother and they're fertilised, and when they're laid, the embryos are actually relatively undeveloped. When we think about reptiles, they're actually the embryos are comparatively much more developed within the mother, even uh, in the groups which are just traditional egg layings. So, which means that for them to go from egg laying to live birth, they need to be able to maintain the eggs for longer within the mother. So, for the further the last bits of development of the embryo, and this basically means that all the changes physiologically that occur within the mother need to be able to sustain this embryo for longer. 
some of these things include being able to provide adequate oxygen and adequate water supply to the baby to allow uh, gas exchange to occur. Mm-hmm. And also, depending on the type of live birth, uh, they need to be able to give them different forms of nutrients. So in some different uh, reptiles, they predominantly, the embryos predominantly develop by feeding on yolk that's deposited within the egg. But in other animals, they actually actively transport nutrients through a placenta to the lizards throughout um, development. And so this is actually concomitant with live birth evolving so many times, the placenta also develops and it's a whole different range of complexities of the placenta as well. Right. So they're undergoing quite dramatic um, internal changes with like what, what their body has to produce and how it produces it. Yeah, that's right. So if you think in the simplest terms that to have a developing embryo within you, the embryo is getting larger and larger. And so the lizard needs to be able to accommodate that. So there needs to be a lot of uh, changes within the uterus of the lizards. So the uterus can grow bigger and bigger to allow these developing embryos. But then also, as I just mentioned, all the other different changes, including uh, providing oxygen and whatnot. So uh, we've studied how these changes occur Mm -hmm. by looking under the microscope at different microscope sections of the uterus. Uh, but what I've personally done the most is looking using genetics instead. So we can look at how the genetic changes um, occur through, throughout pregnancy or throughout uh, containing egg before, giving, before laying the egg. And, and just to clarify, as, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, um, we've got sorry, skinks in kind of north New South Wales who give birth to live young and you know, nearer to Sydney, skinks that give birth through eggs. And we're in this yes. weird, like, transitioning bit between, you know, not really knowing what's going to come next. I mean, what is the next step with this research or where is this research going to go, do you think? Or where does it need to go? So uh, what we see with these lizards in particular is that the lizards from up north, which are live-bearing, mm-hmm. have many of the typical changes occurring throughout pregnancy that we would expect from a live-bearing organism. What we found surprising as well is that the egg-laying ones that in Sydney have many changes that occur throughout um, the time they're incubating the egg within the mother, which mirror those within the live birthing lizard. So in this way, it's quite different from a lot of uh, egg-laying lizards in that uh, it has a lot of these changes such as increasing the activity of genes for oxygen supply or for other gas exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, also just for allowing the uterus to grow. And so a lot of this is atypical for egg-laying skinks. And we think this is because the egg-laying populations of this particular lizard are more of a a transitional form between true egg-laying and live birth. When we say this, it's because they incubate the eggs. So they they retain the eggs within the mother for much longer than other egg-laying lizards. And when they lay them, they incubate them for as little as five days before they can hatch. So we think these are very derived lizards and they might actually be transitioning towards live birth, even in the populations around Sydney. So this is something that we need to potentially investigate further to see whether this is the case. And if we might be able to pick up any signatures of evolution that might indicate this. Or an alternative is that they might be going from live birth as a species and going back towards egg laying. And we can't rule out either one yet. So what we need to do is keep investigating whether which of these different possibilities might be the case. And I was, I mean, I was ruminating on it with um, my other co-hosts earlier in the show, but it's, we always hear about evolution in the books and we always hear about this long drawn out process, but it must be very exciting to be able to witness it like in play. Cause it's, it's not this, you know, stagnating or, or static thing. It's constantly changing. So I, I suppose with the significant, 
where do you think the significance of this research would be within building our understanding of evolution? That's a great question because uh, you're right that with most people, myself included growing up, you are taught that evolution is this long drawn out process over millennia mm. in this, what we call punctuated equilibrium. Uh, and this goes right back to the theories of Darwin and Darwin at the time didn't have access to as much of the fossil record as we do now or to all these different mechanisms of evolution. And what we can find is that although evolution does still typically work over these long scales, you can also see dramatic changes over relatively short scales as well. And that's why we're so lucky to have this lizard within Australia to study because we can see these changes that are happening basically within our lifetimes. So I'm not saying that um, by the time I retire that this lizard might have switched again, mm-hmm. but it just means that because it has happened so recently, like we imagine that it might have either transitioned to live birth or might be reversing. We don't know yet. That might have happened within the last few thousand years. It means we have a really kind of unique perspective to look at evolution at a really young stage. And if this is the case, we're able to learn kind of fundamental characteristics of how it might be evolving in this way. And then we can kind of extrapolate that to evolution on a broader scale to kind of think about changes that might occur over shorter timescales. And like, just to, just to finish up, I mean, I picked up your article in the conversation and I was, I'm, I'm really grateful for you coming on and explaining something which is usually shrouded in, you know, scientific language or jargon. Um, <laughs> I suppose, what do you think the significance is for like, the community to, to further understand its wildlife and the evolutionary phases it's going through and this sort of research what why do you think it's so valuable for people to be able to access that so we as part of our requirements as scientists is that we publish our research mm-hmm. and necessarily quite a lot of the time we have to use the jargon which makes it relatively inaccessible to the general broader public but that's not what we want we want the public to be able to digest our news especially because a lot of the taxes people pay are actually funding our research We want people to know what we're doing. We want it to be accessible and we want people to know fundamentally what's occurring within nature within Australia, Mm. because you can see just how fascinating stuff we've got here and just know how important it is to conserve and how important it is to fund this type of research. We want people to be able to basically go outside, see what's around them and understand just how cool it is what we've got here in Australia. Absolutely. Especially specifically with the three toed skink and, you know, having two of the skinks in the world or lizards in the world that actually undergo this process. It's just fascinating stuff. Well, thank you so much, Charles, for joining us today. Um, yeah. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on to talk about the research. <laughs> no problem. Um, thank you, Charles. I, I feel like we, I might reorder some of the questions in that interview just to make sure it kind of flows better, but I think we got across all the messages and I, I fully understand it. So I'm very happy with that. <laughs> great, great. Um, that. Uh, feel free also definitely to get in contact. I mean, 3CR has a very wide um, interest in these sorts of like affairs. We also have a few shows which are more dedicated to this. So I'll be passing on your story to those as Perfect. well, those shows. Um, but yeah, please feel free to get, always get in contact if you do come up against stuff like this because it is super exciting and super interesting. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. Because um, this is like I've published a fair few things over the last few years. But mm. This is really the first one that's taken off with broader appeal and it is kind of satisfying to be able to get the message out there. So when we come up with these type of questions, we'll definitely get in contact because we've got a lot of research still going on in mm. the lab. Uh, mm. So we've got uh, this one here is for the, the three-toed skink as we talked about, but we have the other species in Australia, which does the same thing of having different populations with egg laying and live birth. And we're currently working on that at the moment. So we should be publishing that some stage this year. And then we've also got these really big scale questions going on as well, where we're comparing 
how nutrients are transported from the mothers to the babies in three different species of lizards and also a few species mm. of sharks and rats. And we're going to do this big broad scale synthesis of how it all works together. Yes, yeah, so that'd be, fanta- that'd like be that, yeah. fantastic to cover. And I'm I, like, feel free absolutely to reach out to us because we'd love to, we'd love to get you on and explain that. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> so that's yeah, fantastic. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and we are just finishing up the show. So today we had Iwin chatting with Ruby Rose earlier this morning, who is the director of the Emerging Writers Festival, and speaking about its digital evolution. Then we listened to a recording from Paul Falaris about how to improve health by housing in Aboriginal communities. And then finally, we just heard from Charles Foster about the current evolution of the three-toed skink. Thanks very much all for listening, and up next we have Stick Together.